going to look at Isaiah chapter uh, 7 this morning, uh, and we're actually going to finish out 2022 spending a few weeks thinking about Christmas. We're going to jump back into our First Corinthians series on the other side of the new year, and it's, it's an interesting thought experiment. I think I, I mentioned this last Christmas Eve, but it's an interesting question to ask somebody, to you, what is it that makes Christmas Christmas? Obviously, we've got some time between whether you're a a post-Halloween Christmas starter or a post-Thanksgiving Christmas starter. Uh, We've got some time where where Christmas kind of floods itself into our lives. But my question is, when uh, when does does the Christmas feel hit for you? Or or what about uh, something that's connected to Christmas brings up all of the feels for you? And some, I guess it could be uh, the lights that we begin to see around our homes and around the city and maybe in your, your neighborhoods. For some, maybe it's the Christmas movies that you look forward to watching. For some, it might be the the actual Advent, the beginning of Advent, and the routine that you do. Uh, for some, it might be the food. It could be the special meals. It could be the parties. It could be the cookies or the special desserts. For some, it's the Christmas tree itself. Maybe that's you when you set up the, the tree and decorate it and put all the familiar ornaments on it. I guess it could also be traditions that kick in, uh, like making gingerbread houses uh, together or... Uh, Elf on a Shelf, I guess. I don't know if you do that. Or the Christmas parade that we just went to last night. And of course, I think for some, the Christmas feels kind of start when you begin to hear the Christmas songs. For some, it's the songs. These Christmas carols and Christmas hymns, maybe the Christmas playlist that blasts in your home or through the radio, songs like the ones that we sang this morning. And we're going to think some about the songs this Christmas season together, and and it's actually an amazing thing, at least as it still exists in our culture, at least as it still exists in our country. It's really amazing to me the way that Christmas songs and Christmas hymns in particular sneak God and our Lord Jesus Christ and even incredible theology straight into the ears of our entire culture. Have you ever thought about that? It's, it's really amazing how these songs sneak Jesus into homes and, and cars and offices and stores and movies and Christmas specials, songs that contain rich theology about God himself, about Jesus Christ, our Savior who came at Christmas time, think about it this way. Our country in the main right now is listening to songs about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Through all the different vehicles through which those songs come. And not all of them, of course. Some are about Santa and, and grandma getting run over by reindeer and whatnot. You know, it's not all of them. But the world is listening to songs about Jesus. And we just wanted to take a few weeks this Christmas time to consider a few of the songs that we sing and to kind of unpack them. Today we're going to start with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We want to think about what these songs are saying. We want to think about their themes and how they deeply connect to us, especially at the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. So let's look at Isaiah 
chapter 7 and verse 14. And maybe this is a familiar Christmas verse to you. But the, the word of the Lord says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Let's pray. Lord, we, we love that we can gather like this to, to worship you, the one who is worthy because of all that you are and all that you've done in your, your coming and in your life, in your death, your resurrection. And now, Jesus, you reign at the right hand of your Father, and you are worthy of all the praise that ascends to you around the globe today and all the praise that exists around the throne in heaven. You are worthy, Jesus, because of this salvation that you have brought to the world that God so loves. We pray that you would help us to see you, that you would fill our hearts with joy and with hope this morning. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, so Isaiah 7, 14 is one of these Christmas verses. And of course, the fact that it's verse 14 means that it sits uh, in a context, it sits in a chapter. And, and so what Isaiah 7 is all about is you have Isaiah the prophet who is speaking to King Ahaz about the enemies of God who have come to attack the people of God. And What's going on here is both the king and the people were afraid of the armies that were coming and conspiring together. It says in verse 2 that the heart of the people shook like trees of the forest, like they shake before the wind. But Isaiah began to prophesy to them that because of the covenant that God had made with David, they had all the reason to be reassured. Isaiah told them to ask the Lord for a sign, really any sign, to confirm this. But King Ahaz refused to ask the Lord for a sign, which actually really displeased the Lord. And then you get to verse 14, and it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, right? Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And and of course, in the mystery of prophetic foreshortening, this verse includes but transcends those days and was a foretelling of the coming of Jesus Christ, who would be born to a virgin and whose name would be called Emmanuel, a title for him. You can see in verse 14 that God himself would take the initiative And that God himself would send his own son. And about 700 years later, this is exactly what God did. He sent the son of God, who is Emmanuel, God with us. Look at this from Matthew 1. Starting in verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, as Alex referenced earlier. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now again, think about it. Isaiah was prophesying 700 years before the fulfillment of this promise. And because Isaiah was prophesying so many centuries before this came to pass, there are two particular themes that I think emerge from this one verse. Certainly the the theme of the advent of Christ, the theme of the coming of Christ, and secondly, the theme of longing, the theme of longing. And I think think the main point this morning that will emerge, and and this, this is true, that until we experience God with us in perfection, our hearts are going to long. That's, that's just the truth of it. That until we experience God with us in perfection, our hearts will long. It's actually kind of similar to, to last week. I was thinking about it. Last week we talked about as, as long as we live our lives in exile, we will experience gratitude and lament. We, we talked about both last week. If you're a guest, we spent some time uh, trying to process together with God's word the events of our city Uh, the week before, and that idea that as long as we live our lives in exile, the people of God who who are in the world but not of the world, who are are longing for a a home that is to come, our our true home, which means we're, we're displaced in many ways. We live our lives in exile. It's the same idea. As long as we live our lives in exile, until we reach our eternal home, as long as we live in this seeing in part and not the whole, as long as we live in the already that's happened but the not yet that's still to come, our hearts will experience longing. In the shadowlands, our hearts are hardwired to long, to yearn, to ache for something. And that longing will continue until the perfect coming of Christ. And it's interesting because the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, captures both of these themes really well, doesn't it? Here's the story. According to different storytellers, they report to us that O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, originally in Latin, takes us back over 1,200 years to monastic life in the 8th or 9th century. For seven days prior to Christmas, what would happen is the monasteries, the monks and monasteries would sing or chant the O Antiphons, is what they were called. And the Antiphon was was one of seven verses that began with the letter O, and they would sing one of those verses for seven days leading up to Christmas Eve, or they would chant one of the verses per night leading up to Christmas Eve. So those were the building blocks of the song itself. Again, 1,200 years ago, 
these verses began, then the, then the Latin metrical form of the hymn was composed as early as the 12th century. But then it was John Mason Neal, this report says, the famous architect of the Oxford movement, super famous. I've actually never heard of him. But he is the famous architect of the Oxford movement in the 1800s, and he discovered the Latin hymn in the appendix of an early 18th century manuscript. Neil was a translator of early Greek and Latin hymns, and he included O Come, O Come, Emmanuel in his influential collection, Medieval Hymns and Sequences, which was written in 1851. So this is the, the first time in the last couple hundred years that our song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, arrived in printing. Now, the haunting melody, they say, of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, has its roots as far back as the 15th century in France, but it has kind of a, a sketchy at best history because it wasn't until the 1960s that a musicologist sourced the 15th century manuscript and the melody, the tune. It wasn't until the 60s that we figured that out. So these are the building blocks, among other things, with this song that all came together. Even though the actual composer of the music for one of the world's most popular carols is, is anonymous, technically, it was all of these things that combined, they said. The tune with John Mason Neal's translation of the Latin text that began O Come, O Come, Emmanuel's life in our modern era as a very well-known Advent song. I say all this to say that this song has evolved over the centuries, but has been chanted and sung in some form for over 1,200 years. Our song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. In other words, it's a very popular song and has been for many centuries. And, and certainly, because of the, the longing that this song contains, the, the longing that connects with all whose hearts long for God with us in perfection. And certainly the, the song's tune in that minor key captures the sense of longing, right? It captures the, the essence of something that's been promised but hasn't happened yet. And certainly, the, the song's source is Isaiah 7, 14. And, and it's parallel in Matthew chapter 1. The promise of Emmanuel, God with us. But what I'd like to, to help us to see is that the longing that exists in this song of Advent, this O Come, O Come Emmanuel, that we sing in the, the minor key, that that longing that that song touches in our hearts is a longing that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and when they ate from the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know that sin and curse and death entered every part of God's creation, including our very human nature. And it was actually in God's kindness that while he was 
pronouncing curses because of this disobedience, when he pronounced a curse on the serpent through whom the temptation came, God actually made a promise. This is in Genesis 3.15. He says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the first pages of our Bible, we see here a promise from God. This is actually known as the first sighting of the gospel in the entire Bible because of the promise of a serpent crusher who was to come. The seed of the woman, a son, will crush the serpent's head and certainly at a great cost to himself. But what we need to know is that what accompanies promises What is born in that very moment is the longing in the human heart until that promise is fulfilled. This is just how we're made. That what accompanies any promise in that very moment, something begins in your heart. And that something is a sense of longing, a sense of yearning, a sense of desire until that promise is complete. Have you ever promised to take your children to go get ice cream? Do you know what's born in that very moment? Well, a lot of things, right? But certainly, you've created a desire that will not be satisfied until the promise is kept, right? This is how we are hardwired. And in this case, God made a promise about someone who would conquer the serpent. And we know that that someone was going to be Jesus Christ, a savior to come. But this this longing that was created in that moment would be partially fulfilled sooner When you think about the heart of God who who not only saved and rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, for example, if you fast forward to to Egypt, God saves them and rescues them with the the substitutionary sacrifice of a lamb whose blood would, would be the thing that when the angel saw the blood, he would pass over and judgment would not come upon that house. So so salvation came to God's people. But then do you remember his heart and and how God communicated his desire to be with his people? We we get this this God with us sense, the, the God with us that was lost in the garden, God with us in perfection, God walked with them in the cool of the day, was lost. But God's desire to be with his people was never lost. And so God gave them instruction about a a tabernacle, a blueprint, in which he would dwell at the very center of his people. This is what Exodus 29 says. It says there, and this is God speaking, I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord 
their God. This is just incredible. God's commitment and his heart for his people to, to tabernacle among them. To be present in his glory and his power and his grace right in the middle of the camp. This presence among his people, this, this God with us reality would of course continue in the building of the temple, which was built and dedicated by Solomon. And it tells us that the glory of the Lord filled the temple when Solomon prayed. And God dwelt among his people in the holy of holies. But think about this. From a human perspective, as, as amazing as this is, as mind-blowing as this is, the full longing of their hearts were not fully satisfied because of the sin and brokenness and this impurity, holiness, divide between God and man. The problem wasn't God, God with us. The problem was us. It wasn't, it, it, the problem wasn't God and his glory and power and grace. The problem was, was us and our sin that divides us. In other words, God with us was regulated in those days. And this, this thing that we lost because of the serpent and the temptation to sin which separated us from God, this thing that we, this God with us in perfection that we lost, and God giving a promise to say that, that this is gonna turn around, and the longing that created in our hearts seemed to, to be fulfilled in part but certainly not in whole. So by the time that you get to Isaiah and the prophets, during and before the exile of God's people to Assyria and Babylon, which is part of Israel's history, one of the tragedies of the judgment of God through the vehicle of exile, which was being conquered like they did in the ancient Near East, and removing the people to the homeland to assimilate them into the homeland. The, the tragedy wasn't simply that they had sinned and rejected God and rejected his prophets and rejected the many, 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 many opportunities to repent and return to the Lord. That certainly was a tragedy. The tragedy wasn't just that they were a conquered people who are now essentially enslaved in a, in a foreign land. That certainly was a tragedy. But the theological tragedy was that they were expelled from the presence of God. The presence of God who was among them in the tabernacle and among them in the temple. Which is why, by the way, Ezekiel, how it opens up with this this very weird vision of, of these eyes and wheels and traveling, and it's, it's very strange. But Ezekiel is written to the exiles in Babylon, and the point of that vision is to encourage them that God's presence isn't simply isolated to the temple in Jerusalem, but to remind them that God is everywhere present. And that was meant to give them hope. So 
when you get to Isaiah, and particularly in chapter 7, verse 14, the, the point sharpens, and we find out that though they were removed from the immediate presence of God, God with us was going to be in a person. That's what verse 14 is all about. God with us was going to be a person, the seed of the woman, the one born of a virgin would come and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So try to track this. Try to, try to keep up with the, the, the theme of longing that goes all the way back to the garden and a promise that was made. And here again, another promise made of God with us being born unto us. And so it goes. O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And sung in the minor key, we have a centuries-old song that captures longing. Longing for the Son of God to appear. Longing for what that means when the Son of God appears. We have a longing for full freedom. We have a longing for home. We have a longing for return from exile to our true home. We have a longing for the coming of Jesus. And that is what this song captures and is all about. Look at the next verse. O come, thou day spring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So do you see that the threads of, of longing and, and the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ, they, they weave together in this song for sure. But they also weave together all the way back to the garden and through the wilderness and into the tabernacle and into the temple and even through the exile. And, and of course, we know from reading Matthew chapter 1 on this side of the New Testament that the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled. So we can say, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel, can't we? Because we know that that's exactly what happened. Not shall come to thee. We could sing, Emmanuel, God with us, has come to thee. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John tells us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, God with us, came and Jesus was born and he lived and died to save us from our sin. And the veil between God and man was torn in two when Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus rose again from the dead, having crushed the head of the serpent. The serpent crusher came 
And, and the enemy thought that he was crucifying the Son of God, but oh, he didn't know that the minute Jesus rose from the dead, his head was crushed and he would go into oblivion because Christ, through his sacrificial death in our place, crushed sin and death and hell and he opened the doors of paradise and eternal life for all who would trust in him. He brought salvation to the world as God with us, the one who came to save us from our sins. And also to bring us back into relationship with God, to not only open the doors of paradise and eternal life, to not only give us full forgiveness of sin, but give us the hope that one day we would spend eternity in the presence of God, God with us, unchanging forever and ever. This is what Jesus Christ came to accomplish. All that was lost in the garden, he came to save and redeem and restore in us. And Jesus rose from the dead and he, he reigns today. He ascended to the right hand of his father. And he said, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll send my spirit to be with you. God with us. The spirit of Jesus Christ who dwells in us. This is what we have today through Christ and through the promise of salvation. When you trust in him and receive Christ by faith, you're restored to a relationship with God. The God that your heart longs for, the God that made you. St. Augustine, our, our, our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. This is true about every human being, and Jesus Christ came to bring you back to God. Am I right? Like this is what we celebrate at, at the coming of Christ. It all began when, when the Son of God took on flesh, and he came and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us in Jesus Christ, the God-man. So here's the question, so then why do we sing this song still? If all of this is true, if Christ has come, if, if Jesus Christ was God with us, and for sure he was, and if the Holy Spirit that he promised that comes and indwells every believer and follower of Jesus Christ who have put your faith in him and have been saved by him, if the Spirit of Christ is God with us right now, and when two or three are gathered in his name, he said, I will be what? God with us. I will be with you. I will be among you. So if all that's true, why do we still sing this song? O come, Emmanuel. Why do we still sing, shall come to thee, O Israel, instead of has come to thee? And it's because, and you probably know this already, until we experience God with us in perfection, our hearts will continue to long. There will be a deep longing in our hearts as long as we are in exile, as long as we live in this seeing in part and not the whole, as long as we live in the already but the not yet, our hearts will experience longing. Certainly we have found rest in Christ, that is for sure, but that rest in our experience is still only in part. Not the rest that 
Christ provides. It's a, a full and perfect, complete rest. But we still have this longing in our hearts because we live in the time between times. We live in the shadowlands. We live in the church age. We live in the space between the coming of Christ and the coming of Christ, don't we? And until we experience God with us in perfection, then we will continue to long. Our hearts will continue to long for our true home. We will long for full freedom from our sin, even though the power of sin has already been broken. We, we long to no longer have to walk by faith, but to walk by sight and to see Jesus Christ face to face. We long to live in the very presence of God, the perfect presence of God for all of our days. That longing, that ache, that yearning will continue until the perfect and final coming of Christ. And so we sing the song. We sing a song that, that captures the theme of longing. The, the part of us that knows that there's got to be more. The part of us that longs for all that's wrong to be made right again. The part of us that is, is so grateful for our current experience with Christ and yet so dissatisfied because of how much more we know is there. We live our lives and longing, longing for a day that, by the way, has also been promised to us by Jesus himself and previewed for us in God's word. Look at this from Revelation 21. It captures what our hearts long for. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Look, there's always a life or death choice with Jesus, even here. 
But when we read this section of Revelation, and, and I feel like I return to it all the time, because it, it captures what I think our hearts long for. The all things new, the no more pain and no more death. In the end, it points us to Jesus Christ who says and offers and reminds us that ultimately it's, it's he that we long for. That we long to see his face. We long to be in his presence. And Revelation 21 is, is this report that functions like a promise to us. The new heavens and the new earth will begin. And all that our hearts have longed for, for all of our lives will come true. In the face of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And until that happens, this is our experience. We wait and we yearn we ache and we long for this to be our forever experience. Look, Jesus has come and Jesus will come again. So these Christmas songs that we, we sing, they sit between two advents. The joy that Christ has already come to save, that he has been born. We say joy to the world, the Lord has come, right? And it's true, Christ our Savior has come. And in his coming and in his death and in his resurrection, he has begun all that is necessary for this final ending that we long for to happen. We're just waiting for it. You've sat at these, these, uh, these bridges, right? The intercoastal waterway. Um, and it's a bummer, right? I mean, the, the, the bridge switches and, but you know what you're in for. And if it's during traffic, I think we've had this experience. If it's during traffic and you're way back there, you know what I'm talking about? Like you're parked and I don't know, how many of you put your cars in park in that moment? And how many of you just keep it running? Yeah, kind of two kind of people in the world. You don't know what to do, right? You just keep your foot on the brake or should you put it in park? But I was thinking about it that as far back as you can be when the bridge has stopped, and maybe you can't even see what's happening at the bridge, there's something that happens when you begin to see the first car come down the road. And what is it? You know that the bridge is opened, right? Now, nothing has changed in your situation. You're still sitting there. And you might still be sitting there for quite some time. But one thing that brings hope to your heart is what? The cars have begun. It's the same thing with Jesus. <laughs> I'm telling you. Because we're sitting in the car waiting right now. And maybe nothing has, has really functionally changed. But in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cars are coming. It's begun. It's started. And one day we will drive through into eternity and into paradise in the presence of God with us forever. This is the good news. This is the good news that Jesus came to affect. And so we sing these songs. This is what, what John Piper actually says. He says, the Christian life oscillates between these two poles, the overflowing joy of the already redeemed 
and the tearful yearning of the not yet redeemed. Not that we ever leave the one or the other in this life. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It is good to have Christmas carols that capture both dimensions of life. It's true, isn't it? It's good to have Christmas carols in the key of longing as well as in the key of joy. And when you think about it, our entire lives are filled with these longing and then fulfilled moments. I think Christmas is one of the biggest ones historically for most of us. You think about when you were a kid. The the curse of Narnia was that it was always winter and never Christmas. That was never our experience. We could look forward to Christmas as much as we wanted to. The promise of Christmas was a part of our childhood for all of our childhood. And not just the promise of Christmas, but Christmas morning always came, didn't it? There was a fulfillment wrapped up in all of our excitement and all of our longing for what was going to happen during Christmas time. Promise and then longing fulfilled. You think about other parts of your life. You longed to get engaged, and then you did. The, the moment happened. The thrill of the moment happened. You, you wait for the wedding day, and it comes. It comes to pass. I think in all of, all of our birthdays, maybe spring break, which is right around the corner, maybe you're really looking forward to a summer vacation, we long for it. And then it comes to pass. Maybe you long to be finished with school or a project or finals coming up. And then you'll hit your last one and there'll be a fulfillment. It'll be be over. Maybe yours is the promise of braces coming off or, or you can't wait to retire. Maybe you're more simple and you just really look forward to dinner every night. You know, the promise of dinner is all you need. And then it happens, and the joy of fulfillment when you get to eat dinner. Look, longing and fulfillment, it's, it's woven into the fabric of our lives. And anytime that happens, anytime there's something like this woven into the, fa- the fabric of our humanity, it means that that thing is meant to point us to Jesus. It's meant to point us to Jesus who is the deepest and ultimate longing of our hearts and the promise that he will fulfill all that he said that he would. Look, so every time you or I long for something to happen, there's something deeper going on. Every time you you have received a promise from somebody, and look forward to it being true. There's something deeper happening. And that something deeper is an opportunity for you to reflect on how our longing hearts long for Christ. So I would encourage us all to let your longing this Christmas, whatever, in whatever direction it's heading, let your longing for all things new, let your longing for, for things to be better, let your longing for things that are stuck to be unstuck, let your longing for conflict to be resolved, let your longing for wrong to be made right, let your longings point you to Jesus, let them turn you to Jesus. 
And worship team, you can join me and we'll close. Because in Christ, we find that, that in this already, because he's already come, there is a strength and power that he offers to us as God with us now. That Jesus Christ has all that we need and all that we long for right now in the strength and power that we need to persevere through life in the shadowlands. God with us has come and is, and is with us. And certainly there's bright hope for all that is to come that gives us strength and courage to persevere. To make it to heaven's bright shores. To long for his final coming. To realize that, that guys, we just can't simply imagine all that Christ has up his sleeve for us for all of eternity. We just can't. And yet he's promised it, and it's going to be true. Until then, we wait, and we long for his return. We say with the saints, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your character that anchors every one of your promises in rock-solid reality an expectation that it'll happen because you are God, not like us. You make promises and you are faithful. And you keep your promises and we can count on you. And we've seen your faithfulness in the promising of your son who came to save the world from our sins. Lord, I pray for anyone who is wrestling with this thing called Christianity, wrestling with Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help them to, to not set aside their, their mind and the, the arguments and the, the pros and cons or the reasonings. But Lord, would you direct them to their hearts and to the reality of the longing that exists there that they know has never been satisfied by anything in this world. No matter what they tried, no matter what we used to try to fill it with, the longings of our heart will only find their rest in you. Or will you lead someone to, to trust in you right now? To look to you as their hope and salvation. That you would be God with us in the heart of someone right now. And as we proceed through these holidays, Lord, that through, through this Christmas season, Lord, I just pray that it would be rich in your presence and, and who you are. And, and we thank you that you've promised to return. We thank you that you've promised a new heavens and a new earth. Lead us there by your grace, I pray in Jesus' name.